Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God, we have a wonderful chapter before us. Uh, Please help me to uh, preach it as it should in a way that will be encouraging to all of us that we might all learn of your incredible power but also of that need for us to be faithful to you even to death. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in Daniel chapter 3 this morning, hot on the heels of last week's rather long chapter in chapter 2, where we saw God's sovereign power displayed in the plans that he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And we saw there how God showed us his plan for the establishment of his kingdom, showing us that in the midst of the rise and decline of empires, the reign of good and bad rulers, and in good times and in bad times, the kingdom of God will be established and will grow and ultimately fill the whole universe. That's the scenario that was created by the stone which came and destroyed the great statue that represented the kingdoms of this world that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. We come this morning to chapter 3 and Nebuchadnezzar in his vanity has decided, I'm going to build that statue. I'm going to build it. And as we come to chapter 3, we notice a certain repetition. Already in the first three chapters of Daniel, three times we've had a story where the people of God have been faced with a crisis because of their commitment to him. Then, having prayerfully and carefully followed the commands of the Lord, the people of God have been delivered by the Lord and even honoured by the civic rulers. Three times, Daniel 1, Daniel 2, and now Daniel 3. There's a certain repetition about it. There's a certain monotony about it, you might also say. But there's a lesson for us, even if it becomes monotonous. In fact, you could say it's there three times in order that we don't miss the lesson. Now, it's been said... It's been easy to stand with the crowd. It takes courage to stand alone. And in this third chapter, where we encounter the courage and determination of Daniel's friends, the saying appears to be so true. It's easy to stand with the crowd. It takes courage to stand alone. The story itself ranks as one of the better-known Old Testament stories. And one that clearly flows from the situation that Daniel and friends find themselves in far away from their home in Israel in the land of Babylon as exiles where they are forced to do this, to bow down or to die. If you think that merely remaining standing on your feet where everyone, when everyone else had fallen to the ground, might have caused an anxious drop of perspiration here or there for them, well, that would be nothing compared to the full force of the heat and the perspiration that would bring with their bodies. 
And yet, though the chapter is full of many themes and truths for us to explore, and one message on it can probably never do enough to justify or to do, to do full justice to the text, it remains for us yet another example of how believers have found themselves in those difficult, tight spots and have proved that God, our God, is more than able. Let's consider the chapter under these three headings. First, let's think about the size of the challenge they faced. The size of the challenge they faced. The statue, as Keith said, was really big. Really big, perhaps built to match the size of the king's ego. Really big. 60 cubits wide, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, Keith measures at 27 metres high and just under 3 metres wide. That's about as half as tall as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Two and a half times as tall as your average telephone pole five times bigger than a giraffe, 15 times bigger than your fridge. If you can imagine 15 fridges on top of each other, you've got how big this statue is. That's big. Now it's difficult to say what Nebuchadnezzar's motives were in building this statue. Clearly he had full control of all the nations of the world and this may have been built to reflect the fact, that fact, or it may have been built in an attempt to resist the message that God had given to him in the previous chapter. See, what we've learned about Nebuchadnezzar so far is that he has immense power, but he keeps misusing it. We learned something of the power we, last week in Daniel chapter 2, and then we'll see something more next week in Daniel chapter 4, that he had used the power that God had entrusted him but it all went to his head. It was all in vain. In fact, the king's making of this statue is just so vain, isn't it? I think I'll build a statue that represents me. I want people to worship me. And so the dedication of this statue is shrouded in religious veneer. There are so many religious overtones to the dedication of this statue in the plains of Dura. And that in and of itself reminds us of that dream that he had in chapter 2. And Daniel explained to him that he was the head of gold. There would come a time when his kingdom and those after him would crumble and give way to an eternal kingdom of the Messiah. This statue could have been his own rebellion against that outcome. I'm not going to have that. I'm going to have this instead. So don't be fooled by the king's claims to worship God at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 3's events show those claims to have very little substance. And so back to the text. Let's note that this wasn't just the statue that was the challenge to our friends, was it? It was the introduction of these laws concerning the worship of the statue, bow down to it or die. Now, while you might not like the implications of that, at least the king was clear. But give him that credit. We've all heard rulers and leaders and politicians make pronouncements and leave us guessing as to what they're meaning. 
But there's no wriggle room left here under the king's orders. My way or the highway, like it or lump it, worship or die, your choice. And it was this issue of responding to the worship of the statue that we find these three Hebrew believers, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It's funny that we remember them by their Babylonian names, isn't it? We call them that and the text calls them that here instead of Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. I wonder if the writer of the book is telling us something by this. Something like this, that these young men had been so thoroughly Babylonianized, if that's a word, I'll just make that up, in the people's eyes, that the Hebrew identity that they had was way, way in the background by now. They'd forgotten that they were Hebrews, making all the more harder this response to this challenge and choose the option of the furnace rather than bowing down to this idol and breaking what they know to be the highest responsibility and duty to the Lord their God. Think about the size of the challenge they faced. Secondly, think about the depths of the courage they shared. The depths of the courage they shared. We've established the size of the statue and the size of the king's ego But now let's note the courage of these three men that was even bigger still. What do we know about them? It's likely that they were there that day knowing full well what was coming. They had come to this grand worship the statue day under orders but prepared, no doubt, to make a stand. And that's what they did. They kept on standing when everyone else was on their faces. If you were a believer in the late 70s and you followed the American singer Keith Green, you might have seen the album cover of his record, No Compromise, in which there's a cartoon picture of a drawing of Jesus standing firm, standing on his feet, as the king is carried by on the back of a horse, carried by his servants, And everyone else around but Jesus has their faces to the ground. And at the rear of this scene is the chief guard on horseback who appoints his accusing finger at the only one standing on his feet with a whip in his hand. You can imagine that so easily happening here. Three men on their feet, everyone else on their faces. And yet what also stands out about them is the calmness in the face of what might come as a consequence. When they're brought before the king, their response is measured and polite. We see that in verse 18. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. End of story. It takes courage to do that. But also a fear of God that outstrips any fear of man. To compromise would have been easy. It would have been so easy to say, okay, king, we'll do it, but we'll only do it here in your presence and not any other time. But they refused to bow down. And it was final and unflinching. Hebrews 11.34 speaks of those whose faith quenched the power of fire. 
clearly a reference to these three who had complete confidence in the power of God, saying, our God is able to deliver us. Utterly confident in God's power to deliver them, trusting in his abilities to do that which was supernatural and they were completely submissive to his will. They didn't say, we're going to trust in God because he is going to deliver us. They said, we're going to trust in God even if he decides not to deliver us. Their faith was not in their deliverance. Their faith was in whatever God willed for them. There is no more amazing passage in the Old Testament, is there, than when these men look this most powerful monarch in the face and say, even if he doesn't deliver us, well, we're still not going to do it. That ought to send the chill up the back of every believer because that's the kind of loyalty and faith that the Lord God calls us to. No matter the outcome, no matter the cost. Can you say that this morning? No matter what it costs you to follow Jesus, you'll pay the cost. And you'll trust God, no matter the outcome. Third, let's consider the truths of the principles that they proved. Four of them are going to appear on the screen. There are all many principles here in this text For a start, let's think about the principle that God taught here, that is taught here, that God allows his people to go through trials. With the king getting really angry and the furnace heated way above a comfortable temperature, the three young men soon found themselves in the midst of the fire. The scene highlights what it is that God allows his people to endure And it reminds us of the apparent hopelessness and helplessness that sometimes as believers we might feel in the fury of the fire. We've seen now in each chapter that the trials they have been put through have increased in their intensity every time. But, and this is the point, in the severest of trials, in the heat of the fire, and these young men became four men. That one with the appearance of the son of the gods, to put it in the king's terms. The king just didn't know if it was the son of God himself. All this brings to mind, as we read before from Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. See here the principle that trials are not a sign of weak faith. Sure, it was an extreme test, I grant that, but note it was not a test given because of their lack of faith. But just the opposite. They were in the flames because they had faith. If they had lacked faith, they would have been on their faces long ago. But because they had faith, they ended up in the flames. The Christian life is not all win, 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 victory, victory, victory. Sure, we get into trouble when we don't trust God at times, but not here. God's plan for these young men included going through the trial. It may be that his best plans for you to make you more and more like his son is to put you through a trial, a test, a furnace, because he doesn't love you 
but because he does in order that you might become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. It's maturity. It's growth. Like the boy on the video said, it was to make their faith bigger and the hope that we have in Christ bigger. If nothing else, this principle stands firm that God might not keep you from trial, but he will keep you in trial. And we'll see that again with Daniel in chapter 6. Noting the previous trials that they've gone through this far has all prepared them for this bigger trial. I remember it like it was yesterday, sharing my testimony at a lunchtime public rally at university. I remember it well because when I started speaking at this lunchtime event, my left knee decided to start shaking violently, absolutely shaking. And then my right knee joined in to make it stereo. It was hard going. When your knees are doing this, you can't see what I'm doing at the moment. But if anyone was blessed by my nervous testimony that day at that public lunchtime rally, it was me. See, by doing that, Because I got up and shared my faith publicly, I had opportunity, when it came, to do a tutorial on any topic with my classmates. I chose the topic of the gospel and on the whiteboard sketched out what the gospel was. And I couldn't have done that if I'd never got up and did what I did and had my knees knock so violently. The blessings I received from my first trial enabled me to do the second one so much better. And so here. First it was vegetables, chapter 1. Now it's worship or die, chapter 3. See the principle also that obedience can prove to be costly. The question that Daniel's friends had to face is a question that we have your, also have to answer. Is it your desire to obey God in everything or just when it suits you? Will you obey God as a principle of life, no matter what the cost, or will you choose the option of, when it suits me, I'll be obedient to him? Unfortunately, we have a tendency to look for the easier options, don't we? But this attitude of getting out of it with as little cost as possible seems to be the natural choice. But in terms of discipleship, in terms of following the Lord, the easy option is not the option that God wants us to take. Obedience to God and everything will prove costly. It could cost you your family, it could cost you your job, it could cost you your friends. If you lived in another part of the world, it would cost you your life. Carrying the cross means death to self. It means being prepared to go out on a limb alone if that is what he wants you to do. And what is it that stops us from counting the cost? It's the fear of rejection. It's the fear of being odd. It's the fear of man. And what's the cure to the fear of man? It's to fear God even more. Reflect upon the great cloud of witnesses listed for us in Hebrews 11 who have gone before us and blazed a trail of faith and faithfulness. Think of what they endured. Think of the price 
that God's people have paid. Think of the way in which they let go of the interests and pleasures they could have chosen in the world, like Moses. The royal palace could have been his in order that they might fully grasp what was coming before them in the next world. Their faithfulness causes ourselves, should cause us to examine ourselves. Am I prepared to put my neck on the chopping block? Whatever it is that God asks me to do. And then there's the principle, the fourth principle, that those who stand up for the Lord never stand alone. As these young men fell into the fiery furnace, I don't think they would ever have expected that God had a reward for them in the fiery furnace. Little did they know that in the midst of the flames that they would meet the Son of God and talk with him and see him and receive his blessing. Something far beyond what they could ever have anticipated. Little did they know either that the fire into which they were thrown burned up that which bound them. Did you see that? The bonds were burnt off, but not their clothes. But to meet Jesus in the fire and to find out that truth, they had to be thrown into it. And in the fire learn that the Lord does not abandon his own people. And if your stand for him means that you lose the friendship or the presence of others, then he will reward you enormously with his own presence, his own encouragement, his own protection, his own salvation. A line in the sand is the title of this morning's sermon. Do you know where it comes from, the expression, a line in the sand. Some trace it back to Jesus when they brought the woman caught in adultery to him in John chapter 8 while he wrote with his finger in the sand. Some suggest Jesus wrote a line, drew a line. Others tell us that in 168 BC, a Roman consul drew a circular line in the sand around the king of the Seleucid Empire and said, before you cross this circle, I want you to give me a reply for the Roman Senate implying that Rome would declare war if the king stepped out of the circle. Weighing his options, he didn't step out of the circle. A line in the sand, think of the apostles, Peter and John, saying to the Jewish authorities, who commanded them not to preach any more in the name of Jesus, who responded with, we must obey God rather than men. Or Luther, when called upon to recant his faith, or face death, responded with, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. No doubt there are other stories from history and church history about a line in the sand. A line in the sand just means this far and no further. Well, here's another. It's just what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did when they refused to bow to the idol. I don't know what it might have been like if it were you or I 
who are placed into that situation that they faced. Where your allegiance and my allegiance and your conscience and my conscience was put on the line. But I do know that the Lord Jesus also had to face a line in the sand himself. When in the presence of Pilate, he declared himself and revealed his hand. Hear what he said? He said, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. We need grace to do that, brothers and sisters, don't we? We need grace. Will you pray with me for that? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give thanks to you for the courage and determination of your servants, these men and many others that we could name, men and women, who were faithful unto death, people today all over the world who likewise put themselves on the line for the sake of allegiance and loyalty to Christ. We pray for ourselves, Lord, we fear that our faith is weak. We fear that when tested, we will crumble and fall. But you will give us grace, we pray, grace for the moment, to be able to stand up and say, I stand for Jesus, I'm with him, he is my God and there is no other There is no other that I will bow to or serve. Help us to get to that point where we can say that with absolute confidence and trust. Hear us as we pray for ourselves and one another that you will give us grace in the time of trial. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen.